0: I think if you don't consider the individual nature of belonging, how uh, an individual defines belonging, you are basically asking one to assimilate
1: mm-hmm.
0: or, or what Weidman calls socialization into an, an, an organization or an institution and that assimilation assumes that that person has no capital to bring to the um, piece. So I, I, I really do think they do need to come hand in hand. Because we are not asking students to assimilate. Right. Um, and that's a critical piece that really doesn't get talked about a lot. Right. Um, I have, I have uh, from time to time joke that I used to run first-year experience programs or orientation and that they're really an indoctrination program. <laughs> um, and right. so how, how do we move away from indoctrination to... a a much more, you know, looking at the aspects of belonging and other things.
1: Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today we're talking about college students' sense of belonging. We have one of the editors and two contributing authors from the new book, The Impact of the Sense of Belonging in College, Implications for Student Persistence, Retention, and Success. Thanks to each of you for being here today. I'm so excited to learn from you. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse the archives at studentaffairsnow.com. This episode is brought to you by Stylus, that published the book. Visit styluspub.com and use their promo code Now for 30% off and free shipping. This episode is also sponsored by Vector Solutions, formerly EverFi, the trusted partner for 2,000 and more colleges and universities. Vector Solutions is the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach, and you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Now let's get to the conversation. I'm so grateful for all of you for joining us today. Uh, Aaron, let's kick it off with you. Tell us a little bit about you. Um, Go ahead.
2: Sure, and thank you so much for having us today and and hosting this um, podcast about this topic. Um, I'm Erin Ventram, and I'm a Senior Education and Training Specialist at Anthology, Inc., my background has been on higher ed campuses for about 25 years before I made the move over to a higher ed adjacent role. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily, the last 15 years, I've been in student affairs assessment and prior to that institutional research, institutional effectiveness, so kind of all over. I've also um, been on faculty. And so this has been a great, great work that uh, we have enjoyed doing.
1: Well, thanks so much to the work that you and Gavin Henning did to edit this and pull people together. And I'm so glad we've got you to kind of share the big picture and some real experts on this. So, uh, Terrell, go ahead and tell us a little bit more about you.
3: Sure thing. Thanks, Keith. And I echo the sentiments of Aaron. Thank you for the opportunity to come on the podcast and talk about a really important topic, I think, at a crucial time. Mm -hmm. Um, And hello to everyone who will listen and watch. I'm Terrell Strayhorn. Professor of Higher Education and Women, Gender, Sexuality Studies at Illinois State University, um, and excited to be with this panel of speakers today, talking about a topic that has been sort of center of my research agenda for a little bit of a decade now. Um, previously, I've served on the faculty at the University of Tennessee Knoxville, the Ohio State University, lemoyne and College, and most recently as Provost and Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs at Virginia Union University, and so. Um, I look forward to sharing some insights that I think come from the chapter um, as well as some of the work that I've been doing as director of the Center for the Study of Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Glad to be here.
1: Awesome. So glad you're here. And Vasti, tell us more about you.
0: Thank you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Vasti Torres, and I go by she, her, and yeah, because I am of my native language is Spanish. Um, I'm currently the executive direct uh, executive associate dean for the School of Education, and I'm a professor in Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at Indiana University.
1: Awesome. Well, I, I'm so glad all of you are here, and I think uh, as we were talking before, in my work, I'm hearing so many campuses really wanting to center belonging in their efforts uh, with students and helping students learn and centering belonging. And then we get about five minutes into that conversation, and then the heads tilt and they go, "What do we mean by that? what is What does that really mean? What is the nuance of that? And so I'm so excited. I think uh, Aaron and Gavin were prescient in sort of getting this out, starting this project at a time uh, before uh, it was really center stage. And I know many of you have been thinking and writing and researching about this for a long time. So Aaron, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you pursued this project, you and Gavin, and the folks you, brought together and what you learned through the process?
2: Sure, Um, I think that's a great question as we were kind of chatting earlier. So where I want to start is to give uh, some environmental context for this. Um, So if you think about a few data points related to birth rates in the US, college enrollment trends and retention persistence and graduation rates, uh, we we know those are lower than we would hope. So Pew Research Foundation says that birth rates were already at an all-time low before the pandemic. There was some anticipation of uh, an anticipated baby boom arise from the, the pandemic, but actually birth rates dropped around 4%. So, you know, again, thinking about those college enrollment trends, mm-hmm. uh, 2003 to 2017 there was an undergraduate enrollment increase by 17 percent what we're predicting now is 2017 to 2028 undergraduate enrollment will have an increase of only two percent and when you think about that those projections were reported in 2017 which is five years ago and we're we're in a, in a different world now a few uh,
1: things have changed yeah yes
2: just a few So 30% of students drop out before their sophomore year, 62% graduate within six years. So with that in mind, it's no wonder that colleges and universities have begun to frame discussion around student success in new ways. So um, I noticed on my campus, before I joined Anthology, I was on a campus, lots of meetings, sense of belonging, what do we do, how do we get students, you know, to stay and succeed, but there was never, again, it was that kind of lack of agreement on how to define it, how to measure it, and the limited research investigating sense of belonging was kind of scattered all over. We found Terrell's work, you know, and so that kind of got us thinking about that, but um, there was lots of confusion about sense of belonging is engagement. It's the Mm -hmm. same thing as involvement. So I, you know, that's again, to hear Terrell talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, Gavin and I just kind of chatted and I said, Hey, what are you hearing on your campus? Because we don't seem to be arriving. We're just talking and talking and talking. I said, what do you think? And so we decided just to, well, why don't we pull this together? There's not a, you know, a compendium of research. So let's kind of pull together maybe that first volume, that first work of everything that's out there. So we wanted to, our intention and vision was to bring together the research and address what sense of belonging is, what it looks like and how it impacts student success. One interesting point, Keith, is we put out the call for authors in April of 2020. So, yes. Folks said, I've got
1: all this free time to write.
2: Yeah, well, no, actually, we had been working and planning and we put the call out and then we were like, okay, what does this mean for this book? What does the pandemic mean for Sense of Belonging? So I am delighted to say that I think that this book, and the author's work has become an even more valuable tool for educators as a result of the pandemic and the shift to new teaching modalities and closed down campuses. So Mm -hmm. I think there was a a positive impact. What I have learned, I've learned so much, and Mm -hmm. I enjoyed, one of the thrills of being the editor is you get to read all these incredible authors and their body of work and their research and the different and you know it brings up so many different things in your mind I think I was surprised I knew it was a complex topic but the depth and complexity Mm -hmm. of it I, I was surprised by that I learned a lot about that and then another thing that was really gave me some food for thought is the neuroscience the cognitive neuroscience around sense of belonging and what that looks like in the brain um and so there's you know a chapter about that in the book too so those are kind of the things that i were big overarching points about what i learned
1: mm-hmm. i really appreciate it by that and i know you've got a copy of the book so please show it off yes. show it off for us and there there's is. some real uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's, well it's, used. Well it's used. very
2: well used and little notes. <laughs> and because yeah. there's so much in it, I keep going back and looking at different things and different chapters. So it's, right. it's a great resource.
1: And uh, just for folks who may be interested, there's some good thought pieces, um, which is, I think, a lot of what we're going to explore. There's some research pieces. And then there's also some little... Practical vignettes, a so yes. little little mm-hmm. snippets of practitioners and how they've used it, that are very brief, very short, and I think really helpful for the for those who want to help transition the theory and the research into practice.
2: Yeah, that was one of the sections of the book. So we did uh, three sections: uh, theories and foundations with part one, mm-hmm. then sense of belonging across student populations, and then implications and applications. So we decided to organize it in in that fashion.
1: Great, great. Well, I think chapter two, if I'm going from my memory, is Terrell's chapter um, talking about um, your research and sort of uh, not just your research, but also your long-term research and study of this and the evolution of this. Um, In one of the opening chapters, you distinguish between the often conflated terms of engagement involvement, and belonging. And so I sort of think about those as kind of often being braided together, and maybe you can help us unbraid those, um, engagement, involvement, and belonging.
3: Yeah, so that is a good um, segue into, I think, the core topic of the chapter that um, Aaron and Gavin um Thought would be useful to the volume and I thought it was great as a person who's written about sense of belonging to be a contributor to another volume that really drives down a bit um, more in depth around academic belonging and really trying to help practitioners and researchers and scholars understand um, what belonging is, what it does in higher education, and then how does it relate to some other concepts that are already um, pretty well established on the shelf of knowledge. And so you allude to them, um, engagement, involvement, and belonging. This was my second or third time being able to sort of take a perspective on this matter because um, in fact, when I wrote the second edition to my belonging book, the editors at Routledge asked for that kind of chapter that would deal with this. And it turns out, Lisa Wolfwindow, our colleague at the University of Kansas, um, wrote a piece um about this tangled web of terms. and,
0: <laughs> um,
3: you know, offered a perspective on whether or not they are synonyms and similar? Are they correlates of one another? or are they, in fact, um you know, pretty unrelated um in some ways? And so, in short, in the chapter, I talk about the fact that we know, much like Aaron and Gavin set up in the introductory chapter, that um, students face all sorts of challenges in college. And those challenges were only exacerbated by the global pandemic and um, the historic uh, racial reconciliation that we witnessed in society over the past couple of years. Uh, And so because of those forces, we've observed declining trends in terms of students' enrollment, students matriculation, students retention and persistence. All right, so the question becomes, what causes that other than global pandemic, Black Lives Matter and the other um, Mm -hmm. forces? And we've known for a long time that students either stay or leave college because of support, lack of support or because of the presence of um, useful um, Mm -hmm. support for them. And we have a whole lot of research across different racial and ethnic groups about the important role that parents play and families and communities, but also um, the role that faculty, staff, student affairs administrators play in this as well. And so we know that for students to be successful, they must establish supportive relationships with others on campus. And there's a pretty widespread um, literature about that. And be involved in clubs and organizations connected with, personnel in meaningful ways and also feel important to the group. Well, in many senses, those three um, sentiments um, sort of connect very closely to these three concepts. So in short, in the chapter I talk about, um, it is essential for students to connect with others in college. That's involvement. um, And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, That it's not up to the student though. And I listen, I mean, when I first started writing about it, I didn't do this very well. Um, I, I talked a lot about belonging at the individual level um, and, and found myself really drawn to trying to understand students' perceptions and their feelings and the meaning that they make. Whether I was using quantitative or qualitative data, I was really trying to see through the student's lens. But the problem with um, only focusing there is that many institutions then think it's up to the students to find a sense of belonging. Um, And we've known actually for a long time, and Vasti is at Indiana University, there's a center for post-secondary research there, was led by George Koo. There's a lot of research that's come out of that center that's helped us understand the importance of engagement. Engagement is related to this concept of involvement, the uh, psychological and physical energy that students devote to their college experience, but it also underscores the important role that institutions have in fostering the conditions that compel students to be involved in that way. That's equitable and appropriate and safe and secure, right? So that's engagement. Um, And that's when students are meaningfully involved and that institutions arise to their engagement uh, responsibility, what I call in the chapter an equity imperative, that we know that, I used to say, um, Keith and friends, that we open the doors of access in higher education to so many groups. And then one day I heard myself say that and I was teaching the history of higher education. I thought, I didn't open those doors. Those doors were kicked down, protested down, You're torn right. down, pushed through. So I gotta stop saying that. And anybody <laughs> who watches this podcast, feel free to do the same because that's not the story of access in higher education. Access has not been given to newcomers. It's been protested and demanded. Um and because of that, institutions know now that we enroll students from all different zip codes, backgrounds, walks of life. And so we have a responsibility then to make sure that they can access the support that we know they need to be successful. That's involvement, that's engagement. So I close with when students are involved and in their institution at engaging institutions, they feel important and cared about and like they matter in that sense of belonging.
1: Mm-hmm. So let me see if I got this right. So involvement is connection. Engagement is sort of the investment and in the time and energy. And then belonging is if those things go well, what the student feels and feeling mattered and feeling cared for. How'd I do? Not bad.
3: I I think that, you know, (laughs) when you talk about time, I think about um, involvement really as a frequency-based behavioral kind of concept. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. what uh, Aston said that he's like, look, it's not about how they feel or think. It's about the time and energy, what they do in college. I think engagement turns our attention to what institutions must do to mm-hmm. um, create conditions that compel students to be involved. And I think that if Aston said it's not about feeling, I know when I write love longing, I say it is a feeling. Um, mm-hmm. It is about how students feel and their perception of the campus environment the access and accessibility of support services and those relationships when you mm-hmm. put those together i think that's the way that they sort of um relate and i will close by saying to me they are not synonyms they are correlates with one another but there are distinctive traits and you know we have a lot of research that looks at measurement issues with these concepts and they are strong correlations but they are not um perfect so they right. they must be conceptually distinct
1: I think something else you point out that I want to draw practitioners attention to uh, how researchers use some of these terms in a very strict way and run measurement and then how practitioners talk about them in staff meetings is not always the same. So I think that's I another like that. place where the kind of conflation can happen.
0: I also wonder um, to kind of do a preview of of the work that I've been doing is could you be engaged in one particular portion but not feel like you belong at the institution? And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the kind of confounding parts of, of using mm-hmm. belonging solely. Mm-hmm. And Terrell, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this.
3: I, I agree. I mean, I've, in the theory of belonging, um, you know, I use data to paint that exact image. I mean, I have surveyed and interviewed students who say, you know what, listen, When I am um, in the um, theater majors club, I feel like I'm with my people, and I feel like I belong and I matter, um, and I'm involved. But when I go right down the hall and enter into my science class, or when I think about the fact that it's difficult for me to get a hold of my academic advisor. The message and the meaning I make of that is that I'm not important. So here it is a person who's involved and feels a sense of belonging in one place but does not and does not feel it overall to the institution. I think for a lot of historically underserved and marginalized populations belonging to the institution is some ultimate maybe outcome and goal but it happens first through these social groups and smaller um, enclaves.
1: That that makes a lot of sense and I think it it has me wondering about how this varies from institutions because I I spent a lot of time at a very small, private liberal arts school, McAllister College, 2,000 students. You can literally know everybody. But then what happens when you're at Indiana University? How do you have a sense of belonging there in this big place? And it makes sense that folks would feel connected to the soccer team, uh, to the theater and dance, uh, to the Black Lives Matter organization, to maybe this residence hall, but then not feel connected to the broader institution. I think how, I would think that different institutions might want to create a sense of belonging at different scales and so think, that it's not just the football game on Saturday where you feel like right. I belong to the institution. Right.
0: And
2: we talked about that too. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. So smaller colleges and universities, you do know everyone, but as we've seen across, um, this volume and, um, Bastian Terrell's work, sense of belonging cannot be looked at without looking at intersectionality of the students. Mm-hmm. So if you're at a smaller college or university, they may not be as diverse. So then you struggle with sense of belonging in that piece of it, you know, a larger university, you might find your tribe or your people or, but then you're up against the larger population. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think you have to balance
3: it out. Right. You know, and to the point of intersectionality. So I'm at um Illinois State University, which is in Bloomington normal. It's not exactly the world's largest metropolis city. However, a lot of our students, and not a lot of them, but I have students who are from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And coming from Chicago to so here it is, they see this as a smaller place. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for a much larger kind of place that's more like home. So I think to Aaron's point, intersectionality works in so many um, complicated ways, right? It takes into account the student's background, their geography, their sexuality, their identity, and that that shapes, it sets, a sort of serves as a sort of aperture or a lens through which they see and experience college. It also sets what I think they think is important for finding that sense of belonging. I've met students who are like, you know, no, I don't feel like I matter to this professor. or no, I don't feel like, mm-hmm. um, you know, my uh, academic advisor cares about me, but you know what my coach does on the track team and I love it here. Mm-hmm. That's the student helping me understand. It's not about my expectations of their belonging, but for their own. Yeah.
1: Well, you, you alluded to this, but this tension between the individual um, and then the institutional responsibility and individual structures and systems, I'm going to quote you to prove I did my homework. You pointed out that tension by saying, quote, "It is essential for students to form positive, meaningful relationships with others, quote. And others point out that institutions have a responsibility to foster belonging. You quickly conclude with, yes, both are correct. So tell us a little bit about the both and of individual and institutional responsibility here.
3: Yeah, I appreciate this and love, would love for all our colleagues to chime in too. I mean, and the work I've done with campuses, um, you know, I think we're all yearning to um, to contribute to this conversation. And so at some point, you know, people, I've, I heard some um, critiques that, you know, oh no, it's too individual-based. Um, you gotta think about the institution as if that was not mentioned. But um, the moment we only focus on the institution um and think that it's all structural it's all systems one I think we miss one of the things that a student in in Nashville at Vanderbilt University uh heard me talk about belonging and they said you know what belonging to me is like my superpower yeah this place may not be that welcoming it may not be that hospitable to me but there are things I can do to fashion and create a space for myself where I can Feel connected and feel valued until the institution gets better. I don't want to deny students that opportunity to see belonging as this um, force that is in their control, that working with others, they can create spaces um, in their own tables, as it were. But by the same token, I don't want to miss that provosts, presidents, deans who will watch this podcast have an important role to play in the belonging work. And that is, um, belonging doesn't happen, it is created and we created in higher education through our policies, our procedures, our processes, our personnel. It's hard to tell students they belong at a place when they don't see themselves reflected in the faculty and staff, the senior administration. Um, they don't see opportunities for people like them to advance in the institution. It's also true that you know right now it's hard to feel like you belong when you don't know um, what the degree requirements are and how long it will take you and what support is available. So when we as academic leaders, I love doing this as a provost, really thinking about belonging applied to my practice and how can we simplify our processes? How can we make this journey for students seamless? How can we anticipate their needs and offer support, not wait for them to come and find it, Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, being successful in college should not be a research project. It shouldn't require mm-hmm. students to have to, you know, get an IRB form uh, filled out and <laughs> figure out how do I access my degree audit and what the hell is a degree, I mean, heck is a degree audit and mm-hmm. um, how many credits are required and what's a prerequisite. We ought to use what we know to make this um, experience more humanizing, more manageable, more efficient, more productive, and I think when we do that through our strategic work in those areas, we're constructing and mm-hmm. building belonging, and that's the institution responsible that really tracks pretty well, I think on george's yeah. George Ku's earlier comments about engagement
1: and I was, the visual I have is removing obstacles, taking where where are the students bumping in obstacles, removing those so that things are easier, whether they don't know what a prerequisite is they don't know what they are uh, they don't know where this office is um all of those things. I, I was, I'll go ahead
2: Erin. Uh, I, I was going to say and I think oftentimes where I like to think about the institution having a responsibility is that for many years we have looked at students from a deficit model. If you mm-hmm. don't know where your academic advisor is, well that's on you because you didn't pay attention in orientation as opposed to saying hey maybe there's another way we can create this so more mm-hmm. students are aware, they're more aware of services on campus. So I think, um, and again, I like what Terrell says, you have to create it, because I think being involved and engaged is necessary, but not necess- but not sufficient for student mm-hmm. success. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that institutions have, um, I think this might be a game changer for them if they add sense of belonging into their mix and shift, do a paradigm shift on what they're doing on campuses for our students. That you know, that that could be a game changer and really impact student success positively.
0: So, I, at, at the risk of sounding like I disagree with my colleagues, which I actually don't. Oh,
1: I love it! I love it! Hey, <laughs>
0: okay. I'd love to hear. I actually don't. Call. I, I think if you don't consider the individual nature of belonging, how uh, an individual defines belonging, you are basically asking one to assimilate mm-hmm. or or what Weidman calls socialization into an, mm-hmm. an, an organization or an institution. And that assimilation assumes that that person has no capital to bring to the um, piece. So I, I, I really do think they do need to come hand in hand. Because we are not asking students to assimilate. Right. Um, and that's a critical piece that really doesn't get talked about a lot. Right. Um, I have I have uh, from time to time joke that I used to run first year experience programs or orientation and that they're really an indoctrination program. <laughs> um, and right. so how how do we move away from indoctrination to a, a much more, you know, looking at the aspects of belonging right. and other things.
1: Well, I knew, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, Brene Brown talks about the difference between belonging and fitting in. And fitting in is what you're describing, this assimilation, or I have to be like everybody else, I have right. to talk like everybody else, I have to wear the same clothes everybody else wears, that's fitting in, whereas belonging is, who you are is accepted and you feel valued and you feel mattered and, and all of that, so.
3: Just as uh, you are, as well. Just stop. as you are, right? you have no. Um, there's no transaction required in order right. for a student. Now, there's transactions for us as an institution to get to know our students. So I love what Vasti set up there for everyone who will watch the podcast and works in orientation programs. I think when we start to really think about belonging applied to orientation, I mean I've seen some really exciting um, work at you know several institutions, two year and four year where they're spending more time getting to know students and building community and helping students learn how to navigate the institution. It's not indoctrination, it's really about a sense of membership and helping the student understand what does that even mean? But the institution's also open to learning some things about itself. And I think gets back to um, what you were saying earlier, Keith, and that is, as we think about um, belonging, that it really is, um, you know, about removing barriers.
1: Mm. And I mm-hmm. always say it's,
3: there's a part of belonging that's destructive, right? Mm-hmm. We gotta identify barriers and remove them. And mm-hmm. we've built them. We've built process walls and yes. deadline walls and all sorts of walls that get in the way of student success. But it's yeah. not just destructive and kicking down those walls although that's important, it's also constructive. And that is starting to build the kind of innovative orientation programs that Vasi's talking about and other kinds of on-ramps that support students through their journey.
1: Well, uh, two favorite quotes so far for me is belonging is my superpower from that student that Terrell mentioned, and engagement and involvement is necessary but may not be sufficient uh, from Aaron. Uh, Vasu, let's let's turn to you. Your chapter is about uh, transfer students specifically, but you open with some important distinctions between different approaches to belonging. You mentioned integration from Tinto, person environment fit, and funnel mental, human need. From Terrell Strayhorn, <laughs> help us understand these differing perspectives more, and uh, and your thoughts, your 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 perspective on these. Yeah,
0: well, I, I will say that to understand my perspective, you have to understand some things about my past and my experiences. So, I was a transfer student, and so mm-hmm. I'm very aware that my experience as a transfer student was drastically different than the students who were starting in their first year. And mm-hmm. I did attend a small liberal arts college. So I did know all 2000 <laughs> people by the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, um, the second piece is that I've done research at urban universities. And the the commuter nature and sort of the, the way things interact with the environment at urban universities is very different than much of the research that is so focused on residential full-time traditional age students. So sure. that's a piece that also entered in this. And, and the final thing is I do a fair amount of work with community colleges, especially through Achieving the Dream and other community college initiatives. And community college environment is seldom mentioned when we're talking about um, sort of developmental, uh, looking at belonging and develop, developing that. Now, what that means is that as, as a person who tends to connect 52 million dots at the mm. same time, We were looking at support, validation, socialization, integration, belonging, mattering, and community. All these things have a synergistic relationship, or as Terrell said, correlated. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're actually treated as very separate constructs, which is really kind of um, difficult when you're looking at students who are marginalized in one way or another. So what, what... All these things kind of mean is that we have to recognize that environment and the culture slash identity of a student influences how they see belonging. Mm -hmm. There's not a one size fits all. Um, As I mentioned before, this may look like we have to look at each student individually, but it's about sort of creating environments that are inclusive and um, provide multiple opportunities. And the final thing, is that we have to recognize that some students come to class and leave, Mm -hmm. and that's all they do. That is their general college experience. So how do we begin to look at this growing population of commuter students? Um, And if you look at the data, the majority of students of color begin at a community college, which is a commuter, tend to be a Mm commuter-type environment. How do we consider looking at these types of students in the context of very traditional residential-based research that looks at belonging, and so it really prompted me to kind of think about this differently. And luckily, I had some great students who helped me um, flush this out. So, mm-hmm. in the article, in the chapter that I wrote, we do belong. We do start with sort of um, disentangling belonging, validation, mattering, and support, mm-hmm. um, and we problematize it in such a way to say, is this really all the same thing or are there distinct pieces? And so um, the chapter in the book actually looks at a survey that was meant to measure belonging. And what we found is that it really measures belonging and personal support Mm -hmm. um, very distinctly. Uh, So while there is a synergistic relationship, they're very different. And one of the reasons we really wanted to look at this is that If you look at the connection between those things, it's much more complex uh, when you're transitioning to a new institution. So if I'm transitioning in, I'm not forgetting all the people I met before I arrived, Mm -hmm. and I'm not necessarily clicking with the people Mm -hmm. I meet when I arrived. And so it has to be looked at in a much more complex way because the transition for a transfer student is much more complex. Um, The other piece, and and I think Terrell does this as well, is I I use mixed methods a lot. Mm -hmm. And so the chapter I look at does the survey piece, but then we have interviews to kind of fill in the gaps. Um, And I'll talk about a new article that's coming out also to kind of pull all this together. But um, we really found that students were talking about belonging and support, that were on campus, and off-campus elements. It wasn't all on campus. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also found that their past educational experience was almost written off Mm -hmm. in the transfer process because if you didn't take it here, then it may not be worth it. Um, So it really devoided them of the capital they brought to the Mm -hmm. campus in some ways. So that belonging or, or what you referred to as barriers and obstacles, mm-hmm. really did send the message that if you didn't start here, your, your past experiences are not as important. Mm-hmm. So it, they ended up focusing on, on the social support to get their support and sometimes to get their information, which is kind of sad for institutions. Yeah. But that is actually what the literature around transfer students already shows us. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll put that out there. And I'll also say that in an upcoming article, we kind of expanded the work we did for this chapter, and we try to problematize all these ideas as, is the, are these parts of community? And do transfer students create communities in different ways that incorporate different things? And what we found is that there were some distinct support elements, there were some distinct belonging elements, and there were distinct validation elements. But what was most interesting is that the sources of those elements were based on time. How much time am I gonna spend in this environment? Do I want Mm -hmm. to engage um, Mm -hmm. more so here or do I wanna keep my past experiences? Um, The people in terms of like who's validating my experiences and we've talked about this before, and this is especially true, I think, in in commuter institutions. Mm -hmm. If I have 52 million things demanding my attention, Mm -hmm. why am I gonna engage with the traditional experience when I have support and people um, that I can draw from? And this is also true in cultural elements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The the familial attachment becomes very critical for some students and that is a people thing. And the final piece is place. How does place influence how you see yourself as part of the community? And so if I'm commuting half an hour to an hour, why am I going to engage or invest time in the campus community Mm -hmm. when I've got other things? Or when I get put in a, or in the article we talk about is transfer housing was like the least desirable housing. Right. Those students are like on an, on another side of the campus, and that place really influenced how they saw themselves mm-hmm. as part of the community. So it, it very much um, is not monolithic. It is very uh malleable, depending on the students' experiences. And I do agree that institutions can do something, but we can talk more about that later if we like. Well,
1: that's where my curiosity is. I I think it's really interesting that the students are telling you that things beyond the campus walls, maybe family, maybe my job, maybe how far my commute is or not, are are such a big part of the picture, right? Um, But I'm wondering, what what would you suggest for institutional leaders You might say, I get that, but we don't have any say of that. We don't have any control of that. That's sort of beyond our purview. Are there ways that institutional leaders and staff can better incorporate that in their work? Yeah.
0: And Keith, I'll also add that this doesn't contradict what Terrell and Aaron yeah. were saying. I I, I want to make sure that you know people understand that. It's just looking at it slightly different. I think one of the first things that institutions have to look at is that socialization or integration, social activities is mm-hmm. not the be all for everyone. Mm. It may not be actually creating anything, belonging or community for some students. Um, so I think getting away from like, oh, let's have pizza parties is, is an important <laughs> right. part of what we need to do as a field. Or the at least strategy...
1: not having it be the only strategy we utilize, right? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Uh, The the second element is this notion that uh, all students will develop their relationships on campus, and those relationships will be the most important relationships Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they form. And we really do actually uh, create programs, create entire orientation events. Um, approach some aspects of engagement and involvement from that perspective, that all your close friends will be on campus. And that's, we have to get away from that perspective. And the final thing is that we need to begin to understand that community for commuter students is in the classroom. Mm -hmm. It may not actually be outside the classroom. It will for some, it's not universal piece of it. But the classroom community becomes so critical. And, and frankly, I, it's, it's already been mentioned. Removing structural barriers and creating connections is important, but it doesn't have to be done in social or assuming that it, it, all your connections are on campus.
1: Yeah. So just a, a bigger uh, you're sort of makes the, the board game bigger. <laughs> it's It doesn't end at the campus walls. How do we also make all these connections and utilize all of these other things to build that kind of community? Um, I'm hearing over and over again in some of the previous conversations what you're sharing, Vasti, about agency and the individual's agency and sort of meeting them where they're at and what do they want and how do they want to do that. Um, and also that, you know, belonging to my superpower is like big time agency energy I also uh, want to invite Aaron and Terrell in here, but I also love how both Vasti, you're kind of challenging some of your previous orientation practices and Terrell sort of noting, I, I didn't always talk about this the way I would like, I wish I would have talked about it. And reminding our colleague, Karen Inglis, always reminded me that scholarship is cumulative. We're we're learning and we're growing or adding out. So I really appreciate that. Um, Aaron and Terrell, anything you want to add here uh, on what Vasti's offering us?
2: I think, um... I th- I appreciate those words, vasta because we do often get into the, <laughs> we want everyone to belong, but it's not, you know, as you can see throughout this volume, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate you bringing that back up to the forefront. Um, and the other thing I appreciate you stressing, too, is it's not just about what... A, traditionally co-curricular programs mm-hmm. um, that academic piece of it is is vital uh, to build that belonging connection and so for some people it may be I'm really close to a professor or I've got you know a study group or maybe it's a living learning community. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, those are things that we do need to to keep remembering and to keep talking about. so thank you. Mm-hmm.
3: I think one thing that um, resonates with what you were sharing, uh, Vasti, and I sort of allude to this in both this chapter and some other writing is, um, one, and I appreciate the point about salience, belonging salience. So, you know, one of the questions that we don't ask enough in higher education is, you know, what matters to the student? And where do you want to belong? And where are you striving to gain a sense of connection and membership? And if we had asked this a decade ago, we would have learned that for transfer students, for many of our first generation students, our working and commuter students, listen, single moms, single dads, military vets um, who come back to school, they're not looking to necessarily feel a strong sense of belonging in the SGA. No slam to the SGA. I was a member of the SGA at UGA, but you know, it worked for me, but it won't work for all. Um, and so really understanding then that, you know, and we've known this in some research that certain um, contexts, like the college classroom, take on um, heightened importance, right, for certain students at certain times, and I think what we learned from this conversation is about the important role that college classrooms play for transfer students. But here's the take home message for those who will listen to this and think about it is, um, we have to also appreciate that we have students who have gained access to that college classroom. And the college classroom, no matter how well acquainted, no matter how efficiently decked out in technology, for some students, it is terrifying. Mm-hmm. It is intimidating it is chaotic it is disorderly um it can be a site of trauma for for them and so how do we then take what we're learning from Vasti's work to look you know cast our critical gaze at the classroom but to understand we've got work to do to make sure that faculty are teaching in ways that are culturally responsive and congruent that they are you know using a diverse set of pedagogies mm-hmm. that will get students, you know, they can build and foster community for group work um, and other kinds of um, perspectives and pedagogies, that I think really respond in practical ways to the recommendation that Vasti's making.
1: Yeah. So, awesome.
0: And I'll I'll add that um, when we don't uh, validate or acknowledge the the capital that students bring to class, from their past experiences. We are trying to assimilate them if we don't pay attention to that. And and I'll give you a concrete example how a simple shift validated students' prior experience. I know an institution that used to run orientation for transfer students. They had maybe 25, 30% of the transfer students show up. Mm -hmm. They changed the name of it Mm -hmm. to advising Registration for transfer students. And guess what? Almost 100% of the transfer students showed up (laughs) because it wasn't about, like, we think you need to be oriented to college life. life. It was, you need advising, you need to register, and you have some of this previous knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, And they did some overlapping things, but it totally shifted the focus of that student experience to be focused on what they already know and the things
1: they need to do. It's such an important point. I keep learning again and again in my work that sometimes just changing what we call things can make such a significant difference in how people engage or don't or how they the mindset they bring or or what they come into it. So I really appreciate that example. Well, we are running out of time uh, and the podcast is called Student Affairs Now. And we always like to end by asking our guests, what are you thinking, troubling or pondering now? might be related to our conversation today or just other things happening uh, in your world. And uh, also, if you wanna share where folks can connect with you, um, but let's start with Vasti, what are you troubling now? Oh,
0: I'm troubling everything these days. Um, <laughs> I, I'm actually uh, really wondering um, how we're gonna fare after the pandemic on this constant push to treat all students the same. Mm-hmm. Um, if we know anything, not all students are the same. We've known that you know, since the beginning of higher education, but yet we continue to try and do that. And um, I, I do think that having been virtual for a year and a half to two years is gonna change students' expectations. And how do we begin to look at issues of community and belonging when students' expectations are different today? So I, I think about that quite a bit. Um, and I love to engage people on Twitter, which is my main social media at, mm-hmm. and my Twitter handle is Dr. Vosti. Um, mm-hmm. So easy enough to kind of remember.
1: Thank you, thank you. And Terrell, what's on your mind now?
3: I echo uh, the sentiments of Vosti. There's a lot that's on my mind mm-hmm. right now. Um, and since she has eloquently talked about, you know, how will we fare? In this, I don't know what to call it post pandemic, <laughs> endemic, um, life, new normal, whatever it's going to be. You know, I think another piece that connects to this conversation and likely to many folks in your listening audience is that we've known for a long time that students um, find support in higher education through positive, meaningful relationships with faculty and staff. And so just as much as their sense of belonging matters, so too does the sense of belonging of faculty and staff, those who work in academic affairs and student affairs. And we've got, you know, a need for more work on the student front. We've got a real serious gap around belonging and the personnel space. And so I've been um, doing more um, work there and writing in that space to really think about one, um, what is it? What is it? What does it mean? Is it a correlate or a synonym? Does it operate mm-hmm. the same way? Are the same sort of factors important and salient? Um, and then most importantly, then how do we um as institutional leaders really create and construct it? So I close with a little anecdote. I mean, when I was provost at Virginia Union University, I, you know, watched my faculty um, you know, pivot very quickly to teach online, manage enormous burdens. With research and teaching mm-hmm. and meeting students' needs and stepping up to the plate to help, you know, a um comprehensive, historically black, four-year liberal arts university ensure business continuity through a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a toll for people stepping up in that way. And as we make our way into long-term planning sustainability, I don't know, endemic, pandemic, new normal, the question becomes: how do we um signal to faculty and staff that they matter, mm-hmm. that they they belong at a time, not at our institution, but at lots of corporations, you know, at a time where we refer to people as non-essential workers mm-hmm. and that language, I mean, Vasti's nailed it. Language matters, words wound. And so we're going to be responsible in higher ed and corporate America for those words and labels. Um, and I don't think we've yet seen or witness what will happen so anyway think about those things write about those things invite others to think about it and the best way to connect is on social media i am tl strayhorn on all things
1: awesome thank you and aaron what are you troubling now you did this great project two years in the making it's come out people can buy it now what are you troubling now
2: so let me tell you what I'm pondering and and, and troubling about, and I think Terrell and and Basti both hit on these things. So this this is kind of perfect perfect timing. Um, when we think about, I feel like we're we're finally trying to get a good grasp and a good handle, of a sense of belonging on campus what about off-campus environmental context? Mm. What about uh, social justice and social activism? Um, so, you know, in under future directions and implications, one thing I close the book on is, is there a darker side to sense of belonging? Mm. What happens when, when and if that's sense of belonging results in negative behaviors and consequences Um, and I think a lot of that has come up for me over you know the the last several years with our you know our current environment how what does that look like how do we shift that how do we I don't know it's just something I'm really thinking about at sense of belonging at what cost is Mm -hmm. something that Kristen Wren talks about Mm -hmm. in the foreword. So I think I'm just, uh, again, I'm just kind of pondering what what are some other aspects of this that we need to investigate? Um, So yeah, I also um, have been pondering that. And if people want to connect, I would love to hear more discussion around that. I am primarily LinkedIn or email ebentrum at
1: anthology.com and Dr. Aaron Bentrum on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thanks to all three of you for your great thinking and contributions and for sharing that with our guests here today. This has been terrific. Um, and thanks also to our sponsors of today's episode, Stylus and Vector Solutions. Stylus is proud to be the sponsor for Student Affairs Now podcast. You can browse their Student Affairs, Diversity, and Professional Development titles at styluspub.com. You can always use promo code SA Now for 30% off all their books, including this one, and free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Stylus Pub. And Vector Solutions, how will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students report commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion are as important as academic rigor when selecting a college. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment, not an expense. For over 20 years, Vector Solutions, which now includes the Campus Prevention Network, formerly EverFi, has been the partner of choice for 2,000 and more colleges and universities and national organizations. With nine efficacy studies behind their courses, you can trust and have full confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. Transform the future of your institution and the community you serve. Learn more at vectorsolutions.com slash affairs now. Huge shout out to our producer, Nat Ambrosi, who does all the work behind the scenes to make us look and sound good. And if you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com and scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp chimp list. While you're there, check out our archives. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to the fabulous guests today and everyone who is watching and listening. Please make it a great week. Thank you all.